Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, Chief Commerce Strategy Officer and Publicist, and Scott Wingo, CEO of Get Spiffy and co-founder of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This is episode 288, being recorded on Thursday, March 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, and as usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome back, Jason and Scott Show listeners. Jason, COVID is defrosting, and you are getting yourself back on the plane, and I saw that you went out to e-tail. It is true. I, I don't know if listeners can see me knocking on wood when you say that, but yeah, uh, yes, uh, went to my first post-COVID trade show that felt like a trade show from before COVID, which was cool. Very cool. What was um, what was the buzz in the like the first time? Well, I guess NRF. Some folks got together. Did you end up? You you didn't go to NRF. I did not go to oh, NRF, and uh, and attendance at NRF was. I think there are people that went and and found it good, but uh, attendance was significantly down from a normal NRF show. Um, yeah, so this and, is kind of the first normal. Yeah. Show. And the NRF timing was just rough because that was kind of in the heat of the Omicron variant, like reemerging. And, um, but so ETA is in Palm Springs in February. Uh, you know, uh, it, like people were like, uh, turning off mass mandates and, uh, it, it felt pretty good. And the, so the show was sold out. The hotel was fully booked. Um, and if you, if I just plopped you onto the trade show floor, it, it wouldn't have felt any different than ETL 2019 felt to me. So I think people were like, frankly, pretty excited about getting back together, um, and took full advantage of the, you know, typical trade show, uh, activities, the cocktail parties and, and all the frivolity. So I did a couple of, uh, uh, sessions. I did a keynote interview, um, with the, the, Chief Marketing Officer from Signet Jewelers, and they they have a pretty interesting story during the pandemic. Um, the you know uh, they even have an interesting story in the metaverse that like I didn't realize this, but millions of people have gotten married on the metaverse and are buying jewelry for it. Nice, yeah. Can you buy? A, is your diamond an NFT? Uh, in some cases, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd like to see you pitch your wife on it. Yeah, I. Uh, I don't want to actually bring up the topic of buying jewelry and then tell her it's digital jewelry because that won't, <laughs> that won't go where I was wanting it to go. Um, but so, so that was good. Uh, I did a, a panel on, on sort of growth tactics with a bunch of, uh, 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 kind of younger digital native brands. And so that's fun to get, you know, some, some different perspectives and some novel stuff. Uh, and I did record a couple podcasts there. So, uh, listeners have that to look forward to. We'll drop those over the, the next few weeks. Um, and so some good, good conversations with, with real people in the industry. Cool. What was the back of the hall conversations? The, um, you and I have talked a lot about the impact that the Apple and Google privacy changes have had is, was that kind of like one of those? Yeah. You're on the stage. Everything's rosy, but behind the scenes, everyone's like, Oh no, what are we going to do with this? This whole thing that's crashing down around us. Yeah. Uh, it depends, right? Because I feel like there's a couple of different um, cohorts at at Etail. Like there, there is a cohort of um, kind of smaller direct to consumer brands, and I think those guys are right in the the wheelhouse of those impacts. So that absolutely was coming up. Um, you know, it, there is a pretty big like e commerce vendor community at this show, and so they're you know leaning into the the super hypey trend. So everyone's talking about metaverse and. NFTs and trying to convince you why they're uh, the world needs a 107th personalization engine. Um, so, you know, there, there's a fair amount of that stuff. And then, you know, there's some of the, uh, the big wholesale retailers and they're, they were like more interested, like the trends that are impacting them the most right now are things like retail media networks and stuff like that. Very cool. All right. Um, so, uh, anything else on detail? You want to jump into news? No, 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 yeah. Let's. Uh, we got a lot of news to cover, so let's get to it. Cool. Well, it wouldn't be a Jason Scott show if we didn't talk about a little bit of Amazon news. Amazon. 
Amazon News. Your margin is their opportunity. Yeah, so one of the things, uh, it's been a busy week for for Amazon. So um, uh, just yesterday, they filed one of their SEC documents, their their annual report, effectively, and surprised Wall Street with two little uh, good nuggets. So one of them is they've they've expanded their stock buyback. Uh, over time, as you issue stock options and restricted stock units to employees as incentives, your stock count grows, and EPS is calculated by earnings divided by your share count. So when your share count goes up, it puts a natural pressure, downward pressure on your EPS numbers. So Wall Street loves a buyback. So they increase the available buyback to something like $20 billion, which is a pretty big number. Um, but then more more interestingly, Amazon has been one of those stocks that has kind of refused to split. Um, and then just recently, Alphabet, I think it is. Is it Alphabet or Microsoft? I think it's Alphabet announced a split. Um, and... Um, Amazon did that too. This is this is one of those kind of fascinating psychological things. So when you do a stock split, it doesn't change the economics at all, right? So you just say, "Hey, uh, we had 500 shares and they're worth a dollar, and now we have uh, two. Uh, uh, you know, uh, let's see. They usually do a reverse split. So you have they were going for so 500 shares a dollar, and we're going to knock it down to 50 cents. So we have a thousand at 50 cents. So the economics are the same, but." Um, what happens is in many brokerage accounts, you can't buy fractional shares. Um, so it makes the retail investor, it, Amazon's stocks kind of around over $1,000. So when you do a split, uh, it does make it so more people can buy. And then there's a psychological thing that's irrational where people just feel like it's cheaper, even though it mathematically isn't. So, yeah. um, so all that was really well received. Uh, and then, um, and it's been, been interesting because, they also signaled that they're not going to be doing as much capital expenditure this year as prior years. So, so Amazon goes through these invest and harvest phases, and on the call, the the you and I covered it. They were they were pretty cagey about it, and I think Wall Street didn't like that they were going to be in an invest phase, especially after COVID. It didn't kind of make sense. They built so much fulfillment centers, so there were some some elements of this where they clarified some things, and it gave Wall Street a really nice kind of vibe that they're they're not going to be investing a ton on capex. Um, and then I thought it was interesting. They announced they've announced a lot of these little kind of acquisitions, and they did one recently. This company called Vico, if I'm saying that right, V E E Q O, and it's kind of like a multi-channel shipping solution. So they've you and I have long posited that Amazon uh, is not a fan of Shopify and and all the GMV that they've grown and that's going through there. And in Amazon's eyes, they view them as a competitor, and so. You know, there's been a lot of speculation that they're going to come out with some kind of a Shopify killer or some kind of competitive offering to Shopify. So this gives them a pretty interesting shipping kind of non-Amazon shipping solution, kind of like a ship station. They acquired uh, a point of sale system um, uh, that was based out of India. And then uh, this goes back like 18 months ago. They acquired a little e-commerce player out of Australia. So it kind of feels like they're assembling some pieces to something. So it's either little local groups doing random things or there's a big plan and they're assembling things. I've said this before, but I still think I think the best strategy here is to take all these services, create microservices out of them. And then sell them and compete with like the fabrics and the commerce tools. Is that the, the other one? I yeah. always forget it. Yeah. And, you know, kind of so have a headless option and put it in AWS because you already have so many developers using AWS. That would be a great entry point into people that are like, hey, I need, I need a cloud based point of sale functionality of some kind, or I need any of these little pieces. That's my guess of what's going on. Um, and then, um, and then some people that I've talked to have said, all right, if they do that, then like, how is an SMB? How are they going to compete with Amazon, with Shopify? No SMB is going to use these microservices. Um, and I think then they also build a little kind of Shopify killer on top of those microservices, almost like a demo that basically says, look what you can build with these microservices, a, a Shopify-like platform. That's what I think is going on. But um, I'm curious to hear what you think. Yeah. So I, I – Kind of think you're wrong. We'll see. Um, yeah. 
the I I could easily see them like they're they're releasing a ton of microservices on AWS all the time, right? And uh, so I I I will not be surprised at all if they release a stack of commerce oriented microservices for AWS um, that that could compete with Shopify. I just don't think they would do that by acquiring these companies that are on like a whole disparate set of technology stacks and, you know, don't have significant scale and aren't, aren't necessarily like have some competitive IP, like IP, uh, like Amazon could buy all these, could build all these capabilities that these companies have, in, uh, with very little effort. So I look at each one of those companies and I'm like, it kind of solves a practical problem for a particular stakeholder in a particular market. I mean, uh, you know, Amazon's trying to expand their, uh, into Australia and they bought a marketplace that had a bunch of sellers in Australia, right? Like, uh, Amazon's trying to capture more share in India and in India, a bunch of the orders don't get shipped to the consumer's home. They get shipped to a retailer that aggregates the orders and then customers go to that retailer and pick it up. So now they, they bought a POS system that a bunch of those retailers run in these small villages in India. Um, and I, I do think Amazon is interested, uh, is, is certainly going to make a bigger move in, shipping and uh you know i think if you're trying to get people to use amazon uh freight and amazon shipping for non-amazon packages uh one of the things you need is a is a shipping manager software package to give to all those those companies so i think that's what vco is so i i think i don't see these acquisitions as some sort of super strategic set of my rolling up of microservices but but uh we shall see yeah. Okay. We uh we should go back and uh, in the hot tub time machine and re-record our annual predictions. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, and side note, I will. Uh, one other prediction. I'm glad we're not going to go back and visit is uh, <laughs> um, Whole Foods did open their first just walk out store in Washington D.C. this month. Hmm. And I will readily admit, a year ago on this show when we talked about the significance of just walk out, I said probably be a long time before we see this in a whole foods because there's all these logistical challenges that like are not in an Amazon go store, but are in the much bigger grocery format. Like, you know, um, each is of, of fruit and stuff, you know, bulk items that have to be weighed and, um, you know, retrofitting this technology into an existing store that wasn't designed for it is a lot harder than building a purpose built, environment and you know there's there's challenges with things like bathrooms i listed all these things and very smugly said so don't expect to see uh just walk out in a whole foods anytime soon and then less than a year I, later I remember you saying it, it was pretty much impossible yeah clearly Never. i thought it was impossible um and yeah. i feel like that that created a moonshot team at amazon which then did it <laughs> <laughs> Because Jeff is Jeff's like, oh, Jason's challenged me now. Exactly. Is down. Exactly. Yeah. So so congratulations to Team Amazon. Uh, I have not gotten a chance to shop that. I have shopped the the Amazon Fresh stores with Just Walk Out. So which is kind of an intermediate step. So so uh, I'm excited to see how that plays out. Yeah, kind of a a tangential Amazon news story, and we talked about this on our last episode, which. Um, uh, shout out to listeners. We we had a really, you know, kind of strong engagement from from you guys about the Amazon logistics deep dive. We appreciate everyone not only listening to that. You know, we we were concerned it would be a little boring, kind of going through all these counts of what they're doing. But uh, at least I find it riveting. <laughs> and uh, but we got really good feedback on that, and we appreciate everyone listening to that. Buried in that, um, at the time, we did talk about Shopify's earnings where. Uh, they basically came out and said their previous iteration on partnering with 3PLs to do shipping hadn't worked. Um, and this was actually predicted by, by Fazzle over at Fabric. I think he mentioned it on the show. He's been pretty vocal on Twitter about it too. I'm not revealing some secret. And, um, Wall Street was, uh, and then they, they said they're going to spend, um, what was it? A billion dollars on fulfillment centers, which seemed laughably small, um, especially in the context of the, you know, 260-ish large fulfillment centers Amazon has. Um, and that would get them two-day shipping, which just do- doesn't logically make sense to me. Um, and then, Jason, you pointed out that's not not even where the market is now. Um, but the update on that is Wall Street was not amused. And w- what happens is 
when you're a high flying stock with a big multiple and your 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 model becomes part of the story and you know Shopify has these really high both gross and net margins and relatively high growth and so their growth is slowed down and then Wall Street kind of it was kind of a doomsday scenario so Wall Street's like all right you're slowing down your growth you've got the shipping problem you always talk about how you're not worried about Amazon but something's going on here um, and then on top of that, um, you know, they basically said to Wall Street, we're going to change our margin structure because we're going to take all our EBITDA and plug it into this, this buying warehouses. So Wall Street hates it when you make a change like that and you kind of say, I'm a 80% gross margin business and now I'm going to be a 60% gross, whatever it is. Um, so the stock has like been in a world of hurt. So it's, it's basically gone down by half, I think, depending on whatever time frame you look at. Um, and then there's been a lot of stories about folks leaving and, and it's kind of created a little bit of chaos. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, can Shopify execute on this? Can they do it and not... Um, really freak out their investor base, um, what happens with employee churn. So so it's kind of the first time they've had a bit of a misstep or, or a resetting of their valuation. So um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been following it closely. I, uh, side note on Fazel, Fazel is the CEO of uh, Fabric, which is a headless commerce company that in some ways competes with Shopify. Uh, and I actually ran into him in detail and side note, he just raised, they just raised like $200 million at a billion dollar valuation. Yeah. I'm a super jealous of his ability to raise capital. Uh, yeah. So I, <laughs> he seems to preemptively do it. He was always like, I know we just raised a hundred, but these guys really want in. So we're letting them in for like 200 at a, you know, a bazillion dollar valuation. It's a high class problem. You would know better than I, but I, I have heard uh, the advice frequently repeated that the best time to raise money is when you don't need it. Yeah. I don't know how true that is, that, but uh, yeah. It is true. Yes. I always raise money when I'm down to my last time, <laughs> which is the worst time. Yeah. I did tell him I was expecting like uh, fancier suits and a bigger booth at detail, and he seems like he's not spending the money on that stuff. It's robots. No, he's hiring engineers like crazy. Um, some other news, and I, I know Jason, you have some to run through. So I'll go through this quick. Uh, the I, st I still follow eBay because it's kind of an interesting story, and you know they've even through the pandemic they sorry did okay for our younger stars. listeners. eBay is a, a a website that sells stuff like Amazon, but before Amazon. Yeah, yeah it's this auction format where you like you you takes a, a week to figure out if you bought the product or not. It's not, not great in today's instant, instant feedback. Um, but to be fair, most of their products are sold with buy it now. So their auctions is not the majority, but they're still kind of always called the auction company. Um, so they've had, you know, that there's all these startups that are nibbling away at eBay in different categories. Cause um, for the longest time, I felt like eBay should have vertical buying experiences because if you're a comic book collector, you want, to search for certain things that matter to you versus a shoe collector versus a electronic gadget buyer versus whatever. Um, but you know, they, they stubbornly would never verticalize that experience. And so now they are verticalizing the experience. So they, they're finally kind of waking up to this. Um, there's uh, let's see, they're going to have some, some different experiences for what was it? There was a couple luxury goods, shoes, sports cards, um, and then this is interesting. There's there's this kind of one interesting trend in collectibles that I think is going to go into other areas is um, different ownership models. So taking a physical good and putting a digital ownership on top of it. So there's a site called Dibs, uh, and uh, this actually came up. Greg Bertinelli, uh, we had on the show two years ago. He's a VC that really kind of he's an ex eBay guy, and and he's focuses on these kinds of models. But what Dibs does is, let's say you have some really cool, rare baseball card, and um, you could certainly sell it and then um, extract all the value. But what if you could, you know, put it in a digital vault, a vault somewhere, and then you could sell forty percent of it. So you could get some liquidity from your baseball card, but you still own it, and then you you could you don't have to sell the whole card, um, and then. You know, some of those fractional rights could be shared and or, uh, and whatnot. Or if someone wanted to buy the whole card, they could, and then you could transfer it to them, and it would stay in the vault. So there's all these companies that are doing really innovative things around this. All this this side of of um, digital 
um, marketplaces is within the purview of the SEC. So all this is this is not crypto, um, which is kind of over on its side, the side kind of going rogue outside the SEC for the most part. These are all blessed by the SEC. And um, and then there's two that are very popular. One's called Rally Road and the other one's called Otis. And they do more. They actually go out and buy various collectibles and things, and then you can have fractional ownership. So, for example, in the comic book world, one of the most famous comic books in my generation is called Amazing Fantasy 15, and that's the first Spider-Man. I, I don't have that comic book because it's like $300,000 or something like that, and it, that's, that's crazy. And But, you know... But it's actually an interesting investment because I've watched it for you know thirty years and it's gone from you know five thousand dollars when I was a kid to three hundred thousand dollars now. So you can invest in that by buying a fraction. So eBay announced they're starting this thing called the eBay Vault, which is going to be this thirty-one thousand square feet secured facility where they're going to be able to store all these assets. Um, they say it's going to be the largest one in the world, which didn't make a hundred percent sense to me because that just doesn't, I guess. We just had, you know, Mark on talking about million square foot fulfillment centers. So 31,000 square feet just doesn't seem huge, but I guess it's full of vaults. Um, um, and then that also enabled them the whole eBay model. And this is kind of like the Shopify story where for the longest time they refused to touch a product because, you know, their, their margins are super high because they never touch the product. So it's a, it's a zero asset business. Well, um, all these companies have come along that touch the product. So there's, um, I mentioned some of them, but then then there's like Goat and um, the shoe companies, StockX, where they'll actually get the sneakers in and they'll thumbs up and say, we've looked at these. These are really, you know, Michael Jordan Air sneakers and they we've authenticated them. There's a lot of companies that do this in handbags. Um, who's the one that does it for apparel where you can put all your apparel you want to sell in a bag and they'll take it and real, real or thread up or thread up, thread up. That's what I'm looking for. So, so it's interesting. If you look at every eBay category, someone has kind of come in and added a high touch experience and chewed up a fair amount of the GMV that used to be on eBay. So they're finally kind of reacting to that. Um, And then I thought you'd find this interesting. They're going to launch a, they're going to let you put videos on your listings and then they're going to have a live video streaming pilot for sellers. So that, that could be kind of interesting. I'm kind of excited to see like what your average eBay seller's live stream looks like. It's, it's gonna be, it's gonna be kind of a, you know, a, a menagerie of things to look at there. That'll be funny. Um, and then I thought, you know, being a payments guy, you'd be really excited about this innovation. They call it the digital wallet, and um, it let, lets you store balance from your eBay sales, and then you can use those. Let's say, Jason, you sold one of your widgets for a hundred dollars. You can use that hundred dollars to now go buy stuff. Wow, that's an amazing idea. Yeah. Yeah, it's also known as PayPal in 1997. Yeah. So, so, I was going to so say, for, ha- our, for our younger listeners, uh, that Scott's not being sarcastic. Uh, e- uh, PayPal did start out as a eBay digital wallet, and they spun it off. So this is kind of a redo. Yeah. Yeah, so they're basically having to, you know, um, they've gotten divorced from PayPal. They had this, they, they got separated from PayPal and then they went their separate ways. And now they're basically having to just reinvent PayPal inside of eBay. It's, it's kind of, kind of weird, but they, you know, being eBay, they didn't just say, well, let's do what everyone else does and just license Stripe. They've got all these features. They had to kind of like go do it all themselves. So they're now just finally getting a digital wallet. So there's been this period of time where if you sold on eBay, there was no way to take those funds and then put them back on eBay. You just, you know, um, and then uh, I've been doing some eBay selling and it's like super painful. It's like constantly emailing me and it's like, it, it feels like literally like the first version of PayPal. So, um, so they're doing some innovative things there. And then other areas, they're just kind of like, you know, they, they've been hobbled because of some of the corporate structure things that have gone on. Yeah. And uh, we are teasing eBay a little bit, but in fairness, they still are like the second or third largest e-commerce site in the U S so. Yeah. Uh, I love still- eBay and I, I wish I still feel like there's this big kind of nugget of goodness in there that needs to be unlocked. They just needed to kind of do it faster and in 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 kind of more aggressive ways. Yeah. Now, did you talk about the vault already? I did. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, prediction for next year that I'm going to put on my list is there's going to be a Nicolas Cage movie where he has to break into the vault and steal something. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. You heard a, of a your national first. treasure? Exactly. <laughs> NFT edition. 
Cool. And I know you wanted to talk politics, so I'll step out of the way and let you jump in. Yeah, there's nothing uh, Scott likes better than than uh, talking about like Amazon antitrust and inflation, his, his two favorite topics. Uh, but I should note, uh, while we're covering all the news, that the the monthly inflation numbers came out and there's there's a ton of different numbers but uh one that gets talked about the most is this consumer price index which is kind of a a random basket of goods that were selected in the 1950s and uh based on that index uh, over the last 12 months that index has gone up by 7.9%. So that's the the highest it has gone up in the last uh I don't know uh, more than 30 years. Uh, so that's pretty significant. And that was one of the big talking points at Etail is, you know, what, what are the impacts of, uh, inflation going to be on, on the market and, and how are consumers going to react? So, uh, there, there is significant inflation out there right now. And it, it is like factoring into a lot of retail and e-commerce players plans. Um, are you worried about inflation at all, Scott? You think it's overhyped? What's the. No, I'm very, very worried about it. Um, it's going to hit. I, I don't think it's in control at all, and it's in this kind of a spiral. I think we'll hit to this stagflation thing. So, you know, imagine your retailer, your labor is going up. Um, imagine your e-commerce gas prices are, you know, hitting between four and seven dollars, depending where you are in the country. So now you're going to have all these. Yeah, you know, I'm shocked we haven't seen fuel surcharges from everyone. Maybe they have, and I just missed them. So now it's going to be more expensive to ship stuff. Um, and then you're going to have to raise your prices and then that causes more inflation. And then, you know, and then people need more wages to afford the stuff you just raised the prices on. And that there, there's a, there's, there's kind of a, I worry there's a bit of a, a flywheel there that, that I don't know how you break out of it. Yeah, no. And e- even before all of this uh, uh, fuel unrest, like fuel was already the, the category with the highest inflation and now it's it's you know likely to go even much higher so that that's in uh very unfortunate and it it does i've seen some studies um and this is maybe counterintuitive but when you think about it it makes sense uh inflation is impacting the the low price sellers the most right so if you if you have a little extra margin in your product, you can act as a shock absorber a little bit and absorb some of this inflation. But if you are are selling at razor thin margins, so think dollar stores, like they're getting hit the hardest by inflation. And uh, yeah, they're three dollar stores now. Exactly, and the consumers <laughs> um, that that shop lower priced retailers, which you know tend to skew younger consumers, so Gen Zers, like. They they're feeling inflation much more than older cohorts, so it's uh it, it is in uh, unfortunate and definitely has a potential to be stifling on on uh, a lot of the growth we've been talking about over the last couple of years. So yeah, uh, awkward transition off of that. Um, uh, a random piece of news from from last week. Uh, Nordstrom became the the latest retailer to launch a retail media network. Um. And uh, I, I uh, we'll, we'll talk more about what I think the prospects are for uh, a Nordstrom retail me- uh, media network on another show. But I just wanted to use that to sort of highlight. It's one of the topics that's coming up most in my conversation with retailers and brands is every retailer is leaning into launching these advertising networks. Like we talked on our Amazon deep dive about Amazon disclosing the revenue from from their network and it's huge. So every retailer and their brother is trying to launch one and they're trying to collect dollars from every brand and the brands don't really know how, where and why they should be investing in them. So there's a, a lot of discussion and test and learn um, and uh, debate at the moment about retail media networks. So I, I did uh, uh, knock out my position on them on a, a Forbes article that I'll link to, uh, but I was going to propose to you that we should, uh, uh, find a, the right guest and do a deep dive in retail media networks in an upcoming show. Yeah, I don't think anyone knows more about it than you are. So maybe we'll, it'll just be a Jason solo deep dive. Yeah, I think uh, 10 of my coworkers at Publicis just rolled over in their grave when they heard you say that. They're like, dude, that dude doesn't need his head to be any bigger. And we all know more about it than he does. <laughs> well, we get a lot of listener feedback that's essentially more Jason. So yeah, Can yeah. Never have too much Jason. Yeah, uh, that may have something to do with I have the direct email to the feedback account. Um, 
And then uh, one last piece of news that happened yesterday uh, is our friends at, at Twitter um, expanded an e-commerce pilot that they've been running. So uh, they they have had this this limited pilot uh, where you could essentially on your Twitter account sell three items. So you kind of you had a carousel that could show up in in your Twitter account for these three items, and uh, the expansion is that they now let you upload a, a product feed with 50 or 10,000 items in it. So you can, you can send t- Twitter 10,000 items you sell. And at any given time, you can activate up to 50 of them. So you kind of have a little mini store um, with kind of like a, you know, a, a, a category page with a bunch of product tiles in it. And uh, you can, you can shop through any of these, these 50 items. And it's uh it's what we would call a non-endemic checkout. So if you decide you want to buy one of these items, you don't buy it uh, from Twitter and give Twitter your payment information. You click on that product tile and it takes you to the that brand's e-commerce site on their on their store and you check out there. So it's it's kind of a they Twitter calls it e-commerce, but it's really a referral site um, to these brands. And it's interesting that they're They've tried a lot of different commerce experiences. None of them have been a home run. Um, this is a a new one, um, and I, and I have to say, and I know you you have had similar feelings about this. Uh, I'm kind of skeptical that the referral is a very good customer experience because what tends to happen is you upload this product feed that you know was probably accurate when you uploaded it, but this is all dynamic data. Something that you uploaded goes out of stock, or the price changes. Or you you fix an error in your CMS on the URL, and so that now the product listing on your website doesn't perfectly match the product listing on Twitter, and that you know customers really don't like that when they click a product at one price or in one color, or you know that that you say is available, and then you get to the website and it's a different price or a different color or not available. And on launch day, they had five different uh vendors that could sell stuff um and i i clicked through all of them and three of them you know had were selling five products that were already wrong on day one so uh it it looks a little problematic yeah i've literally had this like conversation with five iterations of this at twitter and it it goes like this a super you know they tend to be this isn't just Twitter, but a lot of these silicon valley companies they're like super arrogant we're you know insert company name and we know all about software. Okay. And hey, we're going to do this marketplace and it's going to be great. And here's how it's going to work. We're going to sell stuff and we're going to run people through this checkout. And then at the end, we want to figure out how much inventory there is. And I'm always like, well, you could do that, but that's exactly wrong, right? Because you want to, before someone buys something, you want to make sure you have it in stock or else it's a, the consumer is going to get really frustrated and leave. And they're always like, well, it's a beta. We can fix that later. Why invest in real-time inventory now? And then they never got a beta because it's, so then they're always like, I'm like, how'd the test go? And they're like, well, consumers hated it. And I'm like, so we're not moving forward. And, and then I'll say, well, you realize you set yourself up to fail and they're like, no, our data indicates that they wouldn't have engaged with it, even if the inventory thing worked. And you're just <laughs> like, I, I don't, I don't understand. So we'll see. Yeah, they don't, they don't understand the importance of this stuff in the in the you know customer journey. They want you know people want colors to be the same, the variants, the um, all the all the blocking and tackling of e-commerce is actually pretty hard if you don't think it through. And most of these companies, these kind of say, oh my God, third-party cookies are going away. We need an e-commerce solution. And then it rattles down to an engineer that that has no idea how to how to get it done. Yeah. Now and I I guess in fairness, I don't there's no easy answer. Like one of the five beta clients is Verizon. And I, I don't know this to be the case, but highly likely that Verizon told Twitter, we don't want you to take the customer's money because then you're the seller of record. We want you to send customers to our website, right? So like the you've got this conundrum that, that like the brands that want to sell stuff want, want to own the customer. They don't want to rent the customer from Twitter. But then, you know, when you do have this kind of two-step experience, it, it totally breaks. And, and Scott, as you know, we have these kind of consistency problems 
just on our own website. So when you add Twitter yeah. to the mix, like it gets much worse and, and it's, it, it, it never works for customer experience. Yeah. I built a whole company to solve this and it has like 120 engineers working on it all the time. It's a hard problem. It's not, it's not going to be something you can like put like a five person engineering team on and have this great integrated e-commerce experience. It's just like not going to happen. Yeah. But that company you just mentioned sounds like it's a good idea though. That sounds cool. Thanks. Yeah. It's been a good run. <laughs> Um, especially after you, you turned over the keys to competent leadership. I feel like that's been a, yeah, finally hit a stride after I got out of, out of the scene. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I thought we would try something new. Uh, we've just covered a bunch of, uh, interesting to us, but random news over the last two weeks. It also kind of is quarterly earning season. And, and so a bunch of retailers over the last couple of weeks since our last show have, have had their, their Q4 earnings, which of course also gives us their, their 2021 earnings. Um, and we could do an eight hour show on all these earnings, but what I thought we would just try to do is, a a earnings rapid fire, uh, because we are known for, for being able to summarize things really briskly and, and concisely. What do you, what do you say to that? Let's rapid fire this puppy. Lightning round. Awesome. So what I've done is I've taken all the companies uh, that I thought would be relevant to our listeners, and I've bundled them into three buckets. What I'm calling the winners, um, which are companies that had a really good year. Uh, uh, what I'm calling the the neutrals, which kind of you know tread water, and what I'm calling the losers, um, which are you know the the folks that lost ground. Um, so in my winners category, the first earnings is Dick Sporting Goods. They actually had a mediocre. Q4. They were up 5.9% versus uh 2021. They're uh, uh and and 2021 was up 28% versus 2019. So so decent growth. Um the their digital was actually down Q4 of this year. So you'd go, Jason, why are they a winner? Um well the uh if we look at their full year, um their their sales in 2021 were up 40% from their sales in 2019. So the so huge growth throughout the pandemic and they were such a big winner in the first year of the pandemic that they still had growth in the second year but it was on top of these huge comps. So um so you know 40% uh growth on a two year stack, you know for a retailer uh, of their size um is a huge win um and just a, a fun stat I'm trying to track for a bunch of these guys. Uh, that now puts them at 27% digital sales. So, so one out of every $4 that Dix takes in is, is uh, from their e-commerce site. Is that Bopus? Uh, it would include Bopus or curbside pickup. Ah, uh, okay. That's cheating. Yeah. Um, so then my second winner is Walmart. Um, the uh their Q4 was up 5.6%. Uh you know again they're the largest retailer in the world so they have the the hardest number to move. Um and uh 5.6% is is considerably up from their their sort of historical average uh and that's on a big comp because they were up 8.6% this quarter last year. Um but the real reason they're a big uh winner is uh ecom uh on a two year stack was up is up 70%. Um, so this was the third largest e-commerce site in, in the United States two years ago, just behind Amazon and eBay. They're now the second largest e-commerce site in the U S and they've grown 70% in the last two years. So that's astronomical. And again, like their, their full year sales were pretty good, uh, up 6.4% last year, up, 15% on a two year stack. And this is a company that normally goes up two or 3% a year. So, um, so I, uh, another big winner. And then my biggest winner, uh, for the year is Target. So they had great numbers across the board. They were up 8.9% for the quarter. They were up 20% this quarter last year. So two, uh, you know, big numbers on top of big numbers. Um, again, on the full year, they're up 20% versus 20, uh, versus two years ago and their digital is a standout in all of this. They're they're uh, two years ago, their digital was up 145% and then they grew another 21% last year on top of that. So monster numbers. And I, I like how they break out their sales. So, so just a couple of things to know um, they're the only company I've seen that report two different segments. They report 
uh, store originated sales versus digitally originated. So where did the order get placed? Um, and uh, they they also separately report store fulfilled sales versus fulfillment center fulfilled sales. So 80% of their orders comes from a store. 20% of their stores uh, of their orders uh, come from digital. But 96% of all their sales are fulfilled from a store. So virtually all their e-commerce is fulfilled from the store. What's interesting about that is what that means is they are selling the 60,000 items that fit in a store are, are all of their sales versus if you look at Amazon, eBay, uh, Walmart, a huge chunk of their e-commerce sales are this super long tail of millions of SKUs. So it, uh, Target had big numbers and they're doing it differently than everyone else. And then the, the number I talk about the most is that, you know, they, they've been really successful with their owned brands. Um, and to kind of put that, uh, in perspective, uh, about 26% of all of their sales were sales of, of exclusive stuff you could only buy at Target. So those own brands were 30 billion of their 106 billion in sales. Um, so that's wow, phenomenal. That's awesome. And then you, you were talking about curbside pickup. Uh, the curbside pickup numbers are, are also silly. Uh, in 2020 during the pandemic, curbside pickup went up 600% at Target. And then last year, you know, that 600% is crazy, but you go, oh yeah, cause all the stores closed and people had to drive up. But then last year when stores reopened, you'd expect that to dip way down and they, curbside pickup went up another 70% on top of the 600% from the previous year. So, uh, so curbside pickup is a huge growth. They, you know, they bought a curbside company right before the pandemic. And so I like, they're kind of clicking on all cylinders right now. Rickle, the 96% number 95. That's so I go to a lot of targets and I've never seen like, most stores that have shipped from store, there's like some corner where it's like a total poop show of people trying to package stuff in the middle of the store and things. Target, if that's true, I never see that. And it's kind of fascinating to me. It seems like the stores would have this huge shipping piece that I'm not seeing somewhere. And it's not like they have a ton of storage in those stores. So they it, did a remodel. You think it's just the shipped? Is it shipped? No. Is that kind of what they're counting there? No. It, like they did a remodel uh, for most of the Target stores where they actually shrunk the selling space. So they used to have no back of house. Like they'd have all the live inventory on the floor. And they actually shrunk the selling space by like 10 or 15% um, and built a shipping center in the back of the stores that you can't see. Right? Um, okay. And so, so they now have dedicated shipping. They like They literally had to go like negotiate with all their carriers because – Carriers are used to delivering stuff to these stores, but not picking stuff up from these stores. Um, so they, they had to work all that. And they're, they're doing so much volume now that you know what their big play is, Scott? They have their own sortation centers and they work differently than Amazon. The, the, the stores, instead of shipping to the customer, like Ship do multiple shipments a day. Uh, via private trucks to the sortation center. And then all the items are shipped from the sortation center. And so that lets them use this like hub and spoke and have super stores that have extra inventory for these orders. But all the inventory is sitting in a store until a customer orders it. And then it goes through this, this multifaceted distribution system to either go to the front of the store for curbside pickup via shipped or to the back of the store out to a sortation center and then via USPS to a, a, a customer nearby. You know, when ship from store came out, everyone in e-commerce kind of laughed because you're taking the most expensive commercial real estate um, and using it as a shipping and warehouses are, you know, dirt cheap. Well, it's inverted. Yeah, I was <laughs> so, going to say that used to be true. <laughs> so now it's actually probably more economical to ship from the store than a warehouse from a pure commercial real estate angle because COVID has killed so much retail space. And then, it, you know, at some point, like office parks, that 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 used to be the highest. And then, so it used to be office park retail and then warehouse. And now it's warehouse, retail, and office park. So <laughs> so it's totally all all mixed up and, and creating a whole nother economic model that we'll have to kind of see what happens. There's, you know, a lot of people are taking these malls and converting them into fulfillment centers, um, I was in one, I was in a Sam's the other day and I was like, this building I'm in feels like a Sam's. And they're like, yeah, it was a Sam's. 
And it was one of those Sam's that he commissioned and they turned it into this weird kind of open office space. And it was, it was very strange because it felt like literally having an office in a Sam's. Yeah. Yeah. That doesn't sound appealing when you describe it like that. <laughs> and they had that whole, um, do they still have like, what do you, like sample snacks? Well, they, they were saying, um, <laughs> they were saying they had a hard, they were putting some like 3d printers in and they had a hard time because the floor was angled and it was cause it was like where some freezers were and they had angled the floor <laughs> to act as drainage. <laughs> and I guess they had to come in and re-engineer like a whole big section of it. Um, uh, and I shopped in that Sam's before too. So it was kind of weird. Like I, I knew kind of where all the stuff was in there. Um, but they also do that. Um, what is that where you, some of your buildings do it, where you check in and you don't have a spot every day as a fancy like hoteling. Yeah. Hoteling. <laughs> so they, they like, they couldn't, they couldn't understand like why no one wanted to come to work. So they like make it so, you know, they had like all these impediments for people to come to work and they're like, we don't know why more people aren't coming in. It's like, well, you've, you've made them feel like, you know, kind of fourth class citizens. They kind of, they don't have a place to sit every day. They can't bring in any personal items. It was, it was kind of, well, and they're basically sitting in a Sam's. All right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think there's going to be an interesting question about like reuse of all this, the, the brick and mortar space that closes. So but it doesn't sound like you're, you're going to be investing in the WeWork 2.0. Uh, probably not. No. Yeah. Uh, side note. And I, I missed the most by far important and brilliant move in that whole target litany. Uh, the major feature they announced is. Uh, that you can now order Starbucks to be included in your curbside pickup order. Ooh, game changer. That I, that it? does feel like a game changer. Uh, I was it, picturing you being first. In line. It feels like they're targeting a couple of people that I know. <laughs> well, uh, as a fellow Starbucks connoisseur, the target ones I have found are not as good. Yeah. about you? Like the controversy. The, some of it, yeah, the taste is not the same. They're franchisees. And, yeah, and you can't mobile order, which is kind of bummer. I guess this is mobile ordering. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think it is a clever move to like sell these impulse and consume on the way home items at curbside. I bet we're going to see a lot more of that. Uh, but I, I am with you. Uh, if I have the option, I usually like to go to a Starbucks company store over a franchisee because the the experience is more consistent at a company store. Um, but I'm saying that to someone that's selling a bunch of franchises. So we should maybe be careful about that. Uh, so neutrals, um, I have my first neutral is Best Buy. They had a, a, a slightly negative quarter. They were down 2.3%. They were up 12% this quarter last year. Um, and I, you know, they actually did decent, uh, they're kind of, uh, two-year stack, they, they've grown about 10%, which is, you know, above what, what a lot of retailers grow. Um, but they, they are in a category that in my mind, like, seems like should have really benefited from the pandemic. And you just don't see, uh, like this huge, huge benefit in their full year numbers. So I put them in my neutral. Um, they, they are now at, 39% of all their, their sales are digital. And at the peak of the pandemic, it was over 50, by the way. So, um, so certainly increasingly their most important store, uh, Ulta beauty, you know, they're, they're a company that was probably pretty negatively affected by the, the pandemic. And they, they had, you know, a decent year, their full year comps, um, were up, uh, pretty significantly this year, but it was because they were so awful last year. So they were down 20% last year. They're up 30% this year. So they're up on a two-year stack, but not amazingly. Um, and then all the apparel guys, like in my mind, there's two kinds of apparel guys. There's apparel guys that had a horrible court year last year and or two years ago and did better last year. And uh, ones that had a horrible year two years ago and are still really struggling, right? So Kohl's, Gap, and Nord Nordstrom and Ralph Lauren are all in that kind of had an atrocious year two years ago and are having a decent little recovery uh, this year. Um, and then like Abercrombie and Macy's, I would put in that category of had an atrocious year two years ago and, a, you know, so far a pretty weak recovery this year. So those are my first two losers are Abercrombie and Macy's. Um, and then, uh, uh, someone who you would think would be really poised to benefit from, uh, the, 
the kind of uh, economic downturn, um, but have really struggled over the last two years are the dollar stores and and especially Dollar Tree. Um, their their Q4 was decent; it was up two point five percent, but they're they're basically up one point one percent for the year, um, which is you know pretty slow growth when the industry grew like twenty percent. So that that is my super rapid fire earnings recap. Are you impressed? Nice. I am. I like uh, how you segmented it. Awesome. Do the dollar guys, I didn't listen to the reports. Are they citing inflation? It's kind of basically, or is it like, so it's their own pricing, but I imagine going after that value-oriented consumer, unfortunately, they're they're the ones that get hit the hardest with inflation. Is that is that kind of what's happening there? Yeah, so that 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 is happening now. Like most of their negative performance over the last two years is kind of um, uh, dollar stores are the least digital. So in the pandemic, when people are going to the stores less, they they became a less viable option, right? Like if you didn't want to go to a Target, you could shop from Target online like pretty seamlessly. Um, but dollar stores very often don't offer e-commerce. Um, they were disproportionately impacted by supply chain disruptions, right? So. You know, if you're a, a big general merchant, you could make all these plays to try to line up merchandise. But, you know, the dollar stores are trying to buy distressed inventory and remainered, remainer, remaindered inventory. So they, they like didn't really have the option to be as proactive as some of the 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 discount general merchants. And so so they had a lot of uh, uh, supply chain disruption. So that those were their their bad news. The last two years, there's a school of thought that they'll have a. a They'll be decently positioned um, in an economic downturn, but but we shall see. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for doing that. If that was helpful for you, we will remind you that the way you can repay us is you can jump on iTunes and leave us that five-star review. Thanks, everyone. We appreciate it. And until next time. Happy commercing. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com. 